From beanies to carry bags and from shoes to caps, browse our shop now at tntradio.live. The latest information and analysis of major events from around the world. You're listening to Compass with Jason Oborn on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Hello and welcome to your Global News Hour. On today's show, former British Prime Minister and Davos darling David Cameron returns to high office as Foreign Secretary in Rishi Sunak's government. The establishment doubles down on vaccination as COVID cases rise around the world and the globalists continue their relentless push for dominance using fear as their motivator and Africa enjoys a successful Saudi-Africa summit. But first today, the US Human Rights Group Center for Constitutional Rights on Monday announced a federal lawsuit against President Joe Biden, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and Defence Secretary Lloyd Austin for their failure to prevent and complicity in the Israeli government's unfolding genocide against the Palestinians in Gaza. The lawsuit was filed on behalf of Defence for Children International Palestine and accused the top US officials of violating international law, including the 1948 Genocide Convention, and the Genocide Convention Implementation Act enacted by the US Congress in 1988. Israeli soldiers have found evidence of Hamas's presence in Gaza's Rantisi Hospital for Children. IDF spokesman Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari said in an English language press conference, underneath the hospital in the basement, we found a Hamas command and control center, suicide vests, grenades, AK-47 assault rifles, explosive devices, RPGs and other weapons, Hagari said. We also found signs that indicate that Hamas held hostages there. Hagari also claimed that the Israeli Navy's elite Shayatet 13 unit and the 401 First Armoured Brigade found evidence that Hamas's terrorists came back from the massacre on October 7 to this hospital. Hamas has offered Israel release of 50 to 70 hostages all women and children, in exchange for a five-day truce. The spokesman for Al-Qassam Brigades, the Palestinians' group military wing, told Al Jazeera. The proposal also included the release of 75 Palestinian women and 200 children from Israeli prisons. The enemy had asked for the release of 100 captives, Abu Abedada said, but the enemy is evading and procrastinating. One woman taken into captivity was killed in an Israeli airstrike a few days ago, he said, accusing Israel of not caring for the hostages' lives. Meanwhile, as the bombing continues, the people in Gaza are suffering immensely under the wastage of resources and the inability to get the simple daily necessities. Dr. Alice Rothschild, a doctor for the Jewish Centre for Peace, described the situation facing Palestinians today. Well, first of all, uh, this is a heavily traumatized population. Just the task of moving from the north to the south while people are being shelled by Israeli military. Uh, you know, they weren't allowing vehicles. So elderly people, children uh, are walking miles to get to, quote, a safe zone. And then they get bombed in their safe zones when they're all crowded together in unwashed shelters, in mosques, in churches, in family homes where there are 30, 40 people crowded in an apartment. Uh, not only are they at risk for dehydration and hunger. Uh, they are also at risk for infectious disease. So we're seeing an increase in chickenpox, scabies, you know, respiratory disease, diarrheal diseases. You've got to remember that there's no clean water. So all of the diseases that go along with a sanitation system that's not working are going to peak. And people are even talking about an outbreak of cholera. I mean, the sanitation system is no longer working. So there's uh, sewage being poured into the Mediterranean Sea where 
people are resorting to bathing and cleaning their clothes and sometimes drinking this very contaminated water. So uh, this is uh, uh, going to be uh, um, a catastrophe from the infectious disease point of view, from the trauma point of view. And then you have thousands of women who are pregnant, who are not having prenatal care, who are going into labor in rubble, in crowded apartments, aren't able to get to hospitals, aren't able to call an ambulance. Uh, the internet keeps going down, and this is controlled by the Israelis as well as they're damaging uh, the internet equipment. Right. People can't use their phones because they have no electricity. Uh, you know, people are going to have heart attacks. They can't get anywhere. It, this is what's this is happening right now. The United States has carried out two more airstrikes in Syria against facilities used by Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and its aligned groups. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said the precision strikes targeted a training facility near the city of Albu Kamal and a safe house near the city of Mayadeen in response to continued attacks against U.S. forces in Syria and Iraq. The president has no higher priority than the safety of U.S. personnel, and he directed today's action to make clear that the U.S. will defend itself, its personnel, and its interests, Austin said in a statement at the weekend. Citing an unnamed local source, the Reuters news agency said the U.S. strikes targeted a camp run by pro-Iranian armed groups in an area of Albu Kamal in the Deir al-Zul province. The other strike was near a bridge close to the city of Maidan, which is near the Iraqi border and is a stronghold of pro-Iranian armed groups, it added. And the AP news agency said one of the sites also included weapon storage, citing a US official who spoke on condition of anonymity to discuss details of a military operation. The US strike is third in just over two weeks as Washington attempts to put an end to drone and rocket attacks against its forces in Syria and Iraq that began when the Israel-Hamas war started a month ago. US and coalition troops have been attacked at least 40 times in Iraq and Syria by Iran-backed forces in recent weeks. About 56 troops have been injured in the attacks in Syria and Iraq, but all have returned to duty, according to the Pentagon. The U.S. has 900 troops in Syria and 2,500 more in neighbouring Iraq, which are on a mission to advise and assist local forces trying to prevent a resurgence of ISIS, which took control of large swathes of both countries before it was eventually defeated. And a federal program to help non-profit groups protect against terrorist acts has been given millions of dollars to mosques and Islamic groups that have praised terrorists and called for the destruction of Israel, according to a Washington Free Beacon review. The Department of Homeland Security awarded the Californian-based Masjid al-Ansar Mosque $100,000 on the 9th of March under the non-profit Nat Security Grants Program. Mustafa Kamel, the imam at Masjid al-Ansar, earlier this year called Jews a bigoted and arrogant breed of people and prayed that they will be annihilated in a war over the Holy Land, according to the Middle East Media Research Institute. Then there is the Islamic Centre of Detroit, which received $150,000 on October 12th in 2022. Its head imam, Imran Salhar, said at a pro-Palestinian rally days after the Hamas's invasion of Israel that Muslims have a fire in our hearts that will burn that state until its demise. During a sermon in March, he referred to the sick, disgusting Zionist regime and prayed, may Allah eradicate them from their existence. Rhetoric could fuel the sorts of hate and terrorist attacks that the Homeland Security grants aim to prevent. Anti-Semitic hate crimes have surged 400% since Hamas's attack, in which more than 1,200 Israelis were slaughtered. 
bipartisan group of senators called for the additional funding under the program last month to protect against a potential rise in anti-Semitic threats. There is little oversight over which programs or organisations the funding goes under the program, which is administered by the Federal Emergency Management Agency and state agencies. The majority of the grants have gone to synagogues, churches, mosques and temples that do not support violence or promote terrorist organisations. Days after the Hamas attack, Imam Taha Hassan of the Islamic Centre of San Diego defended the attack on Israel as an act of self-defence. When people occupied, then the resistance is justified, he said in an October 20 sermon. We cannot accuse somebody who is fighting for his life to be a terrorist. The terrorist is the one who started the occupation, not the one who is defending himself. The mosque received $150,000 under the grant program on August 15, according to federal spending records. At the Flint Islamic Centre, which received $300,000 in grants on October 12, 2022, an Islamic scholar asserted in a sermon last month that Jews literally live for the purpose of genocide of Palestinians. These people, their businesses, have foundations just to serve their objectives. They literally live for a purpose of genocide. In an occupation like this, said Sheikh Abdullah Wahid, Council on American Islamic Relations, an advocacy, advocacy group identified as a co-conspirator of Hamas, has mounted a public awareness campaign to urge mosques and Islamic nonprofits to apply for the Homeland Security grants. The CAIR noted that fewer than 50 Islamic organizations have received funding under the program, largely due to concerns about the potential strings attached to accepting the federal funds. And the Kremlin has expressed alarm over a report that senior Ukrainian military officials acting without their president's knowledge coordinated an attack on Russia's Nord Stream gas pipelines last year. A spokesman for Russian President Vladimir Putin said on Monday that the report published by the Washington Post is further evidence of the Ukrainian involvement in the attack and said the West should also be concerned over the claim that Ukrainian President Zelensky was unaware of the operation. And German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has indicated that he's ready for fresh talks with Russian President Vladimir Putin on the Ukraine conflict, while stressing his position that Moscow must make serious concessions to Kiev to convince it to come to the negotiating table. Speaking to the German daily Hulbronner Stim on Sunday, Schultz claimed that Russia's campaign against Ukraine is the return of imperialism in Europe, saying that Berlin intends to support Kiev with arms and other forms of assistance as long as necessary. However, he left the door open to diplomatic engagement with Russia, explaining that he had held discussions with Putin in the past and is ready to do so in the future. Nevertheless, negotiations with Ukraine require a decisive step from Russia, the Chancellor said, urging Moscow to withdraw its troops from the territory Kiev's claims as its own. The last time Schultz and Putin spoke by phone was in December 2022. At the time, the Russian leader objected to the destructive policy of Western countries to pump the Kiev regime with arms and provide training to the Ukrainian military. This support led by Ukraine to refuse any kind of talks with Russia the Kremlin said. Meanwhile, the German leader signalled in June that he wanted to speak with Putin again. However, Kremlin Press Secretary Dmitry Peskov noted that the Russian leader had no such plans at the time. Russia maintains that it is open to talks with Kiev. However, last autumn, Ukrainian President Zelensky banned negotiations with the current leadership in Moscow after four former Ukrainian regions overwhelmingly voted to join Russia. Washington has recently signaled that it may run out of money for Ukraine if Congress does not approve any new relevant spending bills. 
Last week, the Pentagon said it potentially had only $1 billion remaining for Ukraine military aid and would have to ration arms packages from now on. Cyrus Jansen is a public speaker and businessman who has a podcast with over half a million followers. In this week's episode, he explains what he sees as the beginning of the end for Ukraine. This is the beginning of the end for Ukraine. And as I'll explain in today's video, we will look back on this failure for the US and NATO as a defining moment when the world moved away from American hegemony and officially shifted to a multipolar world. Let me explain. For the past two years, the US government has pledged hundreds of billions of dollars to Ukraine. We've donated so many weapons that we've depleted our own ammunition reserves, and we've convinced every Western ally to join the American-led sanctions against Russia. For the better part of two years, we've heard nothing from Western media other than Ukraine is winning, Putin is losing, the Russian economy is on the verge of collapsing, but the reality couldn't be farther from the truth. First of all, the vast majority of the world refused to join Russian sanctions. Over 100 countries around the globe, including the world's largest democracy, India, have not sanctioned Russia. Why? Because sanctions never work, and Russia is too important of a supplier for energy resources. Before the war, India imported less than 3% of crude oil from Russia. Fast forward to today, and India buys more than 40% of crude oil from Russia. Even the United States, who ironically led the charge to force sanctions on Russia, is still doing business with Putin's government. According to the New York Times, American companies are paying around $1 billion a year to Russia's state-owned nuclear agency to buy the fuel that generates more than half of the United States' emissions-free energy. The Russian ruble has recovered to its pre-war exchange rate against the dollar, and most significantly, Russia has positioned itself to endure this war for however long it takes. Over the past few months, we've seen a significant shift from US senior officials, who have started to use the word stalemate to describe the word in Ukraine. Just listen to this clip from Senator Josh Hawley after Zelensky traveled to Washington, D.C. and asked the U.S. Congress for additional funding. That in the words of, the, of uh, President Zelensky, the, the conflict is a total stalemate. That's what he said. Totally frozen, I believe, was what his words were, which is also what the administration told us yesterday. The administration told us yesterday they want to spend $100 billion more, our money, more, over the next year in the hopes that it will remain a stalemate. Which leads me to ask, what, what is the goal here for the United States? I mean, what, what is it this administration wants to do? I have no earthly idea. They used to say, victory, victory, victory. Now it's stalemate forever. In fact, yesterday, Milley said there will be no military victory. Essentially, the war in Ukraine has come down to one simple question. Which side can maintain a military force the longest? According to the NBC article, Manpower is at the top of the administration's concerns right now. The US and its allies can provide Ukraine with weaponry, but if they don't have competent forces to use them, it doesn't do a lot of good. Ukraine simply doesn't have enough manpower to win this war against Russia. Russia has repeatedly stated that Western arms supplies to Ukraine were hardly affecting the situation on the front lines. In early November, Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu said that the Despite the supply of new kinds of NATO weapons, the Kiev regime is losing. The Russian military has also regularly published photos and videos of destroyed Ukrainian heavy armour, including German-made Leopard tanks. And the inaugural conference of Australians for Science and Freedom brings together thinkers and community leaders to share learnings, formulate plans and help establish new and emerging networks and organisations to restore a thriving Australian society founded on science and freedom. Join the exciting lineup of health professionals, scientists, economists, lawyers, journalists, and community leaders 
to discuss a range of hot issues, including healthcare policy, democracy and human rights, education, the media, and the role of grassroots organisations. The Australians for Science and Freedom Conference will be held at the University of New South Wales, High Street, Kensington, New South Wales, from 8.30am to 6pm on Saturday, the 18th of November, and 8.30am to 4pm on Sunday, the 19th. Plus, TNT Radio will be broadcasting from the conference. Tickets are available now at scienceandfreedom.org. Coming up after the break, the UK and Canada have simultaneously declared travel threat alerts against each other and caution their respective citizens. You're listening to Compass on TNT Radio. TNT Radio's Kate Shamarani. Last night was an interesting one in London. The Metropolitan Police in Trafalgar Square. They were getting pelted with fireworks by the pro-Palestinian. From what I could see from the footage, they they must have been in on the act because they weren't doing anything. There was didn't look like they were doing any arrests. And I seem to remember being chased down Whitehall by hundreds of cops in my stilettos and green cape. It's on still on YouTube. 3.2 million views. And I was arrested. And then I was arrested later and they sent the helicopter and lots of uh, riot police in to get me. They didn't get me that day, but they got me later. Um, And that was me, a woman in her 50s with a pair of high heels on. But no, they were part of the Guy Fawkes night last night. AKA agents of the state, eh? Metropolitan police. Political policing, is it? And you can only come down with your batons and your riot police, the TSG, on peaceful British citizens campaigning against lockdown. Oh, do I sound bitter? I don't think Kate Shamarani on TNT Radio. Affordable housing, we can build that. Sustainable housing, we can build that. At MIT Modular, we understand the importance of housing for all and the importance of design, cost, and functionality. Our goal is to meet the needs of our growing population by converting shipping containers to livable units. If you're like-minded and in a position to invest in something meaningful and life-changing, we want to hear from you. We are a team of professional architects, engineers, and financial and tax experts dedicated to offering unique solutions that provide a brighter future. Our Opportunity Zone Fund offers investors both real estate and operating business diversification, five-year tax deferral on capital gains, annual tax benefits, and ultimately tax-free appreciation potential. There are Opportunity Zones all over America. If you're interested in learning more about our services, need affordable housing, or want to participate in creating a new vision for tomorrow, give us a call in the U.S. on 385-985-5702 or read more at MITModular.com. MIT Modular. We can build that. You're listening to Compass with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Welcome back. The UK and Canada have simultaneously declared travel threats, alerts against each other and cautioned their respective citizens. The UK alert suggests terrorists, terrorists are very likely to try to carry out attacks in Canada. There's a high threat of terrorist attacks globally affecting UK interests and British nationals, including from groups and individuals who view the UK and British nationals as targets. You should remain vigilant at all times. Attacks could be indiscriminate, including in places visited by foreigners. You should remain aware of your surroundings, keep up to date with local media reports and follow the advice of local authorities. The Canadian alert says travellers should exercise a high degree of caution in the UK due to the threat of terrorism. In the UK, previous incidents have resulted in casualties. They include random violent incidents in public areas such as knife and vehicle attacks, as well as explosions. These incidents have occurred mainly in the London area, but have also happened elsewhere. 
Although the updated UK travel advisory on Canada was issued this month, the Canadian government has not adjusted the threat level in their country since 2014. Saudi Arabia hosted its first ever joint summit with African countries on Friday in Riyadh. The event, which brought together leaders from Africa and the Middle East, aimed to promote strategic partnerships and develop relations. Representing Africa were the leaders of Nigeria, Kenya, Zambia, Djibouti and Mauritania, along with the Prime Ministers of Ethiopia and Niger and the Foreign Minister of Egypt. According to the state Saudi press, more than 50 deals and preliminary agreements in the fields of health, education and development projects were signed during the summit. Saudi Arabia provided financing and insurance guarantees of $10 billion for exports to the continent by 2030. The event was an important historic turning point in the relations among the participating countries, the outlet added. The leaders also made use of the opportunity to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman said that we condemn what the Gaza Strip is facing from military assault, targeting of civilians, the violations of international law by the Israeli occupation authorities. We stress the need to stop this war and the forced displacement of Palestinians, he added. The economic consultant Ken Eif said that Africa will be a voice of reason and a voice of wisdom. Africa is open for, for business. And so our, the primary interest is to develop Africa to build our infrastructure, to put us on the same platform as the rest of the world, because we are the last continent uh, uh, that is lagging behind. So, but the politics will never go away, because after all, all of us are part of the United Nations. And so what you see, all these blocks, whether it's BRICS or G20 or admitting us into G20, all of these blocks also part of the, the cooperation agreement that they ask you, please let us support each other when major issues arise, especially around the United Nations. So that's what Africa would be. Africa would be a voice of reason and a voice of wisdom. The FBI focusing on text messages suggesting embattled New York City Mayor Eric Adams helped fast-track approvals from the city building's department and fire department for the Turkish government's headquarters in New York City. According to the New York Post, the FBI seized Adams' cell phones and two iPads amid a federal corruption investigation related to his 2021 campaign. The search warrant revealed an investigation into potential straw donor schemes involving campaign donations from the Turkish government. The New York Post reported federal investigators probing Adams' 2021 campaign are now zeroing in on a series of texts suggested he helped fast-track the opening of the Turkish government's new diplomatic headquarters in Manhattan, sources close to the case told the Post. The September 21 texts between Adams and who was then the Brooklyn Borough President and Democratic mayoral nominee and Turkish Consul General Rayhan Ozgur and then FDNY Commissioner Daniel Nagiro were uncovered by FBI agents Monday after they seized Adams' electronic devices. However, the messages don't appear to show any criminal activity beyond typical outreach that elected officials do on behalf of constituents, according to several sources briefed on the matter. Last month, Adams, a Democrat, complained that illegal immigration was destroying New York City and that it had not had the ability to absorb them contravening Biden administration policy. And Republican Senator Tim Scott announced on Sunday evening he's dropping out of the 2024 presidential race. Scott failed to gain momentum after Tucker Carlson exposed him as a Ukraine hawk over the summer. According to NBC News, Tim Scott's staffers didn't even know the senator was ending his campaign. Here he is making his announcement on Fox with Trey Gowdy. One of the things I would recommend to every single American, I know it's not possible, by the way, if you ever want to love your country more, 
run for president. Traveling this country, meeting people has been one of the most fantastic experiences of my entire life. I love America more today than I did on May 22nd. But when I go back to Iowa, it will not be as a presidential uh, candidate. I am suspending my campaign. I, I think the voters uh, who are the most remarkable people on the planet have been really clear that they're telling me uh, not now, Tim. I don't think they're saying, Trey, no, but I do think they're saying not now. And so I'm going to respect the voters and I'm going to hold on and keep working really hard and uh, look forward to another opportunity. Armed attackers tied up at least 19 villages and killed them with machetes and other weapons in a raid in the Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo late on Sunday. A civil society leader has said other villagers fled but might have drowned as they tried to cross the Lamia River into Uganda. Maurice Mabel Masaidi told Reuters news agency there are still people missing. He said Masaidi and a spokesperson for the DRC Army said the attack in Beni Territory's Watalinga chiefdom was carried out by the Allied Democratic Forces, an armed group based in the eastern DRC that has pledged allegiance to ISIS. In June, ADF fighters killed 42 people, including 37 students at a high school in western Uganda near the DRC border in what the country's deadliest attack in more than a decade. In November, the Ugandan army said it captured the head of an ADF unit known simply as Jovu and killed six of his men in a raid. And Indian rescue workers have made contact with about 40 workers trapped in a tunnel collapse in Uttarakhand state and confirmed that they all of them are safe, officials have said. All the 40 workers trapped inside the tunnel are safe, according to Singh Bandari, a senior commander in the National Disaster Response Force said in a statement Monday, we've sent them food and water. The initial contact was made via a note on a scrap of paper, but later rescuers managed to connect using radio handsets. The tunnel collapse occurred early on Sunday morning during a shift change at the construction site of the Umino Notri National Highway, where 200 metres of tunnel caved in. Photographs released by government rescue teams over the weekend showed huge piles of concrete blocking the tunnel with twisted metal bars protruding in front of the rubble. Authorities began their rescue efforts on Sunday, pumping oxygen into the collapsed section of the tunnel to help workers breathe. And coming up after the news headlines, TNT's own David McBride faces the courts over attempts to blow the whistle on Australian war crimes in Afghanistan. You're listening to Compass on TNT Radio. Now, TNT Radio News. I have huge news. Are you ready for it? Yeah! Do it! Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. The Secret Service has released photos of the bag of cocaine that was found inside the White House earlier this year, four months after the shock discovery. It's been revealed the US is running low on air defence systems after deploying an additional six batteries of the Patriot missile system to the Middle East. And massive demonstrations against anti-Semitism have taken place across France, with over 100,000 people pounding the pavement in Paris. The common housefly, caught in the clutches of the spider's web. Every move it makes just makes matters worse. Then, dinner time. Feast on the captivating stories, videos, and helpful information on our website. Whoa. Dinner's ready. Oh, man. Escape is futile. Just one more video. Get stuck in our web. TNTradio.live.
TNT's David McBride is a former military lawyer turned whistleblower who disclosed information on alleged war crimes against his defence obligation and had a higher duty to act in the public interest, his lawyer has told a Supreme Court judge as the Attorney General warned his intervention in the case could set a dangerous precedent. Stephen Odgers, SC, said his client McBride, who is due to face a jury on several charges Thursday, admitted to breaching orders not to disclose documents to journalists, but said a Defence Force member's obligation to uphold their duty sometimes meant disobeying orders. Was he acting in the course of his duty? Rogers asked during a pre-trial argument Monday about the, how the concept of duty can be framed to the jury. We say it doesn't take long to appreciate that sometimes duties can conflict. If a soldier is confronted by enemy combatants who are surrounded by young children, there is on one hand a duty to remove the threat. There is also a duty to avoid the loss of civilian life. David McBride, who arrived to a large crowd at the court complex on Monday, is facing five charges relating to the disclosure of classified documents between 2013 and 2017, including theft of Commonwealth property and breaching the Defence Act. Greens Senator David Shoebridge moved a motion in the Senate condemning the case on Monday, but Labor and the Coalition did not support it. Dreyfus, who is the Attorney General, told the lower house that if he intended or intervened in a prosecution as a result of political pressure, it could have a range of far-reaching consequences. It could call into question the Attorney General's motives. It could politicise the prosecution process. It could undermine the independence of the Director of Public Prosecutions, he said, warning that the surrounding political commentary was inappropriate days before a jury was selected. It is vital to the administration of justice in Australia that the prosecution process and is seen to be largely independent of the political arena. We should all be thankful for that. On Monday, Crown Prosecutor Patricia MacDonald, SC, told Justice David Mossop that McBride's alleged offending arose after he breached his duty not to disclose the documents, adding that he shared information he wasn't authorised to share and which had only come to his knowledge by virtue of being a Defence Force member. She said that as a military lawyer, McBride's client was the... Commonwealth and the rules required a solicitor not to be publish information confidential to their client. She added that a core duty of a member of the armed forces was to follow orders. The defence's submission in duty includes the advancing the public interest. Such a duty is not recognised by any section of the Defence Act or the Defence Force Discipline Act, she said. Hodges said while the breach of those duties could lead to disciplinary action under military rules, they didn't rightly translate to criminal charges and read from a statement by Australian Defence Force Academy Associate Professor Stephen Coleman that upholding duty and orders could be separate things. And former UK Prime Minister David Cameron has made a surprise comeback to the British government after being appointed to head the country's foreign office by incumbent PM Rishi Sunak. Cameron, who led the country for six years, resigned in 2016 after the UK voted to leave the European Union. The move was announced by Downing Street on Monday as part of a major cabinet reshuffle. Cameron was picked to succeed James Cleverley, who in turn was chosen to replace the recently sacked Home Secretary Suella Braverman. Braverman was given the boot after a row over the policing of pro-Palestinian protests in London, which she branded as hate marches. Commenting on his appointment, Cameron wrote on X, that we are facing a daunting set of international challenges, including the war in Ukraine and the crisis in the Middle East, saying the UK must stand by its allies. He added that while he may have disagreed with some individual decisions of the British government, he described Rishi Sunak as a strong and capable prime minister who is showing exemplary leadership at a difficult time while vowing to do his best in the new role. The 57-year-old veteran politician became the leader of the Conservative Party in 2005, PM by 2010, he built his election campaign on a promise to hold a so-called Brexit referendum. 
While in office, he was instrumental in fostering support for the Islamist militant-backed rebellion in Libya, which resulted in the brutal murder of Muammar Gaddafi and the effective destruction of the country. In 2016, he resigned as both PM and leader of the Conservatives after Leave supporters won the Brexit vote by a 3% margin. Meanwhile, his Brexit nemesis has been facing his own challenges, but also has been seen as a potential future leader of his former party. Nigel Farage is to launch a legal battle with NatWest over the closure of his accountant's private bank subsidiary Coots. The debanking scandal ultimately led to the resignation of Alison Rose, the chief executive of NatWest in July, and the departure of Peter Flavel, the chief executive of Coots, soon after. An independent review into the decision to close Farage's accounts found that although there were serious failings in NatWest's treatment of the former politician, the decision was lawful. Farage has responded by calling the report a whitewash. According to Sky News, an unnamed source said Farage could seek millions over the damage to his reputation and to cover his legal costs. Reports say Farage will join the lineup of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. He said previously he'd ruled out that performance, saying the reality show was humiliating, but had confirmed he was considering joining the show. As he said, ITV had offered him a substantial sum of money to take part. Here is Farage explaining what he's planning next. Well, the Alison Rose decision has been made. She will not get £7.6 million that she wanted to get, and that's correct and right. It's right for taxpayers. And actually, nobody should be rewarded for failure. She's broken virtually every rule in the Financial Conduct Authority rule book. She'll still walk away, though, with about two and a half million pounds. So please don't feel too sorry for her. But this is not the end of the NatWest saga. I'm instructing lawyers today to take action against NatWest Bank for what they've done, for their breach of confidence, for their lying. And I'm going to try and make, if I possibly can, a class action against the bank. They cannot be allowed to go on behaving the way they have been. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. Well, our girl Greta is at it again, except she might have just hung herself with her own rope. Now, what rope is that? Well, she wants to get into political activity. She's trying to parallel what's going on with Israel and Palestine with climate change. In fact, this is exactly how they work. They try to link things together, and yet there's some people in the climate community that don't like this at all. As a matter of fact, they resent her doing that because after all, whether they're right or wrong, climate is important to them. But let me tell you what the common denominator of what people like Greta Thunberg are doing is. They don't know all the facts. She certainly does not know the history, which extends back to April Abraham, by the way, of how this whole problem got going over there. She has no idea. And she certainly does not have any idea of the seven, eight, nine, in fact, probably infinite amount of counters to her climate change stance. So consequently, these people are getting these very loud voices and they're based on ignorance. And the big question is, is how can a society and how can people that need facts, confront facts, have the freedom to do so, how can they survive when the voices that are yelling and screaming the loudest are coming from ignorance? Ponder that question for a while. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you got. Challenging the consensus and debunking the narrative. This is Viewpoint. Ukrainian President Zelensky is among five people named as recipients of the John F. Kennedy Profile in Courage Award for acting to protect democracy. 
President Zelensky was chosen because he has marshaled the spirit, patriotism and untiring sacrifice of the Ukrainian people in a life-or-death fight for their country, the John F. Kennedy Library Foundation said. In response, journalist Gonzalo Lira asked, So when you shut down opposition news channels, persecute journalists critical of you, imprison your political opponents and in some cases have them murdered, that's defending democracy. You're with Jason Olborn and Compass on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. Scientists have puzzled over why some people seem immune to COVID-19, even after exposure. Now, emerging evidence points to an intriguing explanation. Prior run-ins with the common cold. There is an intense debate around whether endemic common colds impact susceptibility to severe COVID outcomes, according to a review of a new study. But some speculate childhood cold exposure partly explains Africa's milder pandemic impact through cross-protection. A 2023 study in the Journal of Clinical Virology Plus analysed robust immune responses to COVID-19 in Lagos, Nigeria. Researchers examined two groups, healthcare workers and the general population across five areas. Of the 250 participants, over 83% had prior exposure to common cold coronaviruses. The study found their infection-fighting white blood cells cross-reacted to COVID-19 virus. This suggests that people who have previously exposed to these genetically-related coronaviruses have immune responses that are protective against future SARS-CoV-2 infections. Bobby Brooke Herrera, Assistant Professor of Global Health at Rutgers Global Health Institute and lead author of the study, said in a press statement. He noted the study's unique baseline data from early in the pandemic before vaccination started. Now that most people have existing COVID antibodies, either from from vaccination or infection, it's difficult to find an unexposed population for comparison, underscoring the value of early pandemic data. The 2023 study in proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences analysed pre-pandemic blood samples from children and adults, along with samples from COVID-19 recoveries. The research found children as young as two had already developed immunity to several viruses, include including SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. However, these protective cells decreased with age. These reactions are especially strong earlier in life and grow much weaker as we get older. Annika Carlson, study corresponding author and research group leader at the Department of Laboratory Medicine, Karolinska Institute, said in another press statement, this may explain why children tend to get milder COVID-19 cases than adults. Meanwhile, Israeli television channels have now told the truth about COVID-19 vaccines, claiming that they cause extremely high death rates compared to the unvaccinated due to a complex erosion of the immune system. That hasn't stopped the fear-mongering after an eighth wave of COVID has arrived in Australia, despite the vaccine apologists calling for more boosters. For what? To attempt to stop the inconvenience of further waves or to justify paranoia against a common cold-like virus and symptoms? As we begin this COVID report, you'll hear Albert Baller, CEO of Pfizer, and his executive team celebrating the announcement of their vaccine, which never completed proper drug trials, but it was an emergency, and that was okay, along with the indemnity they received from governments in countries who would grant it to inject their populations. We made it. <laughs> We had a successful vaccine. The 
efficacy was more than 90%. Oh my god! <laughs> resulted in a success. And this success looks like the biggest scientific breakthrough of the last hundred years. And if it was such a success, like we were told by mainstream news, there wouldn't be COVID anymore. It simply would have died in the process. And yet in Australia, we're talking about an eighth wave and New Zealand has also announced their latest COVID reality. Tinakoto Kato, good evening. A fifth wave of COVID-19 is upon us. That's the warning from health officials as cases rise once again. Tefatu Ora is urging the public to get up-to-date booster vaccinations. Here is Dr. Paul Merrick. The Cleveland Clinic, they've recently published a paper showing that the more shots you get, the more you're vaccinated, the greater your risk of getting COVID. Up-to-date booster vaccinations because the rise in cases is likely due to waning immunity and the introduction of new hybrid variants. This is New Zealand's health spokesman on the 3rd of February 2021. We absolutely um, expected the virus to mutate to um, to get a competitive advantage as you might say it, it will evolve and that will continue to happen and one of the things to point out is um, that will happen more as we use the vaccine because when people are protected or immunized against the existing strains the virus will try to find ways to get around the vaccine. As you can see COVID cases have spiked. They're nowhere near as high as the middle of last year when the borders were opened but COVID rules have since been dropped and with people's immunity waning and the introduction of new variants the Director of Public Health Dr Nick Jones is asking Kiwis to once again take COVID precautions. According to epidemiologists Michael Baker, it's our fifth COVID wave. A new bivalent vaccine has been available since April, offering better protection against Omicron subvariant. Here is Dr. Paul Merrick. Let me say that again. The more shots you get, the greater the risk of getting COVID. So it has a negative efficacy. They are trying to promote a vaccine to prevent a disease that it is causing. A reminder, if you're over 30, you're eligible for a free booster shot, regardless of how many you've already had. Here is New Zealand doctor, Matt Shelton. 33-year-old man just up the road from Wellington, died of a heart attack at home two days after the jab, you know, 33. A 39-year-old woman uh, died four days after her jab in Wangarei, actually, that one, and caused a death was an aneurysm. As a 57-year-old woman in Dunedin, they found her dead in bed 12 hours after her first dose, um, and she'd had a massive brain bleed. If you're aged between 16 to 29, you're eligible for one booster, or more if immunocompromised. A 21-year-old man, fit and healthy martial artist, died two days after his jab, and he died from a brain bleed and cardiac arrest. A 23-year-old woman died 10 days after her second jab. Cause of death was blood clots. Under-16s are not eligible unless you have a medical condition. A 12-year-old boy who suddenly died. I can kick those hundreds of these. You know, 14-year-old boy who just dropped dead in front of his parents down in Dunedin. Really? You know, and he was a talented rugby player. 16-year-old high school girl died two weeks after the jab from the brain bleed. Unfortunately, only about half of New Zealanders over the age of 50 have taken advantage of even having their second booster. So despite the evidence, the establishment continues pushing a broken vaccine that never worked. Meanwhile, the WHO, well, it got what it really wanted, which was the excuse to introduce digital vaccine passports, a policy of both exclusion and compliance. WHO will begin operations of the network today with the existing COVID-19 certificate as a global public good. 
Soon after, we will expand this infrastructure by incorporating other use, such as a digitized international certificate of vaccination, routine immunization cards, and international patient summaries. Let's give the last word to probably the most well-known doctor in this COVID disaster, Dr. Peter McCullough, and what he thinks and what exactly he would do now. Anthony Fauci, Deborah Birx, Brett Girard, they never thought of treating the virus. The only thing they could think of was masking, social distancing, and waiting for a vaccine. This biopharmaceutical complex had a single objective, and that was worldwide mass vaccination. Anything that got in its way was crushed. We just need to scare the living daylights out of them. That was the plan to get everybody to comply. Fear drove irrational behavior. You know, autopsies were coming in. All these people had taken the vaccine, it was well-documented, and they died. Our top line results were that 73.9% of everybody who died after the vaccine, in fact, the vaccine was the cause of death. I think the biopharmaceutical complex said, wait a minute, we can't let this message get out. We're talking about over half a million Americans dying of the vaccine. Do you know 1,100 people died, Americans died of the vaccine, on the same day they took the shot? Some people just die in the vaccine center or a few minutes or a few hours afterwards. It's that acute. So I can tell you this biopharmaceutical complex, they have an objective for mass vaccination. Just get ready for it. The WHO is on a runaway mission to control the world. It's almost like a bad movie. What's gonna stop them from doing it? The only thing that's gonna stop them is the whole world waking up to the truth. And if the whole world wakes up and says, no more, this whole plan dies. So how did we get here? What made society accept that the introduction of a man-made virus is not worth investigating, but punishing those who refuse to take their faulty cure and dangerous medicine ought to be punished and excluded from society? After all, it did not stop transmission, and if it did, then the vaccine taker would be protected regardless. To begin this report, let's go back to a common factor. Who was the person that David and Nelson Rockefeller admired and whom Klaus Schwab followed? You mentioned uh, David um, Henry Kissinger, and I think he first uh, was noticed by the Rockefeller family after he uh, wrote a, um, a very erudite work on uh, nuclear weapons and nuclear war back in the late 1950s. Nuclear weapons and foreign policy. Right. Yes. It's been published. And uh, from that time on, he became pretty close to the Rockefeller family. Well, he did. Um, actually, I guess I was the first one who got to know him because uh, he was a member of an organization called the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. And there was a, a study group at that time that he, as then a uh, young instructor at Harvard, uh, presided at. I was so impressed by him that uh, I introduced him to my brother Nelson, who was then governor in New York and was then considering uh, seeking the presidency of the United States. They became great friends and actually... Uh, Henry was, became Nelson's foreign policy advisor as long as he was in public life, and I think is one of the remarkable international statesmen in the world today, even 30 years after he was Secretary of State, 
he is still asked by heads of state when he travels the world uh, for their for his advice. Let me go back to the time you said when you came here, it transformed your life. Was there a course, a professor who really made that difference for you? Yes, uh, there was um, one course, one seminar of um, Henry Kissinger. Um, which really opened my eyes. I wasn't accepted to the seminar, but I sat in. I think he let me in because I was German. And uh, and it was relatively shortly after the war. There were not too many Germans here. And uh, this created a friendship which has um, uh, endured until today. And, uh, you know, uh, Henry has been several times in, in Davos. Um and I think it was mainly uh, participating in his seminars that I developed my interest for geopolitical affairs. The purpose of the Globalist World Economic Forum is clearly a pathway towards centralised, singular corporate government, which would also involve environmental sustainability and stakeholder capitalism. But at the centre of it all is a fear that there are simply too many people in the world. Here is Patrick Moore speaking to Patrick Beck David about this problem. I can tell you one thing that explains why there went from four billion to eight billion, for example. Why? It's called the Haber-Bosch process. It won two Nobel prizes in the early 1900s. It was a formula, a, a technological uh, process involving very high heat and very high pressure, an extremely complicated process, which was able to combine nitrogen from the atmosphere with natural gas to make ammonia. That ammonia is the basis of all the nitrogen fertilizer being used in the world's agriculture today. It results in at least a doubling of crop production. And that is why we see this news today about Sri Lanka banning nitrogen fertilizer and Netherlands now basically banning much of the nitrogen fertilizer and this is the biggest threat we have right now to an immediate starvation situation in the world. Food shortage. You hear it said... That's where I'm going. ...the odd time. Yeah. But the reason it's, it's self-inflicted, this food shortage, nitrogen, the air has... 70% of the air is nitrogen. We could take nitrogen out of the air for the next million years and make fertilizer because it all goes back into the air again eventually. Same with the carbon dioxide. If we double two more times... We got 32 billion people here. We can't have 32 billion people in, this, in, in, the, in the world. In other words, we won't double it to 32. If we can't have it, we won't go there. Speaking in the Australian Senate, Senator Malcolm Roberts was not holding back on the globalists' plans and the resistance. Instead of working together to push Klaus Schwab's World Economic Forum plan based on United Nations policies, work together instead for our country. Klaus Schwab's life by subscription, quote, is really serfdom, it's slavery. Billionaire globalist corporations will own everything, homes, factories, farms, cars, furniture. And everyday citizens will rent what they need if their social credit score allows. The plan of the Great Reset is that you will die with nothing. To pull off this evil plan, Klaus Schwab's World Economic Forum will need to take more than just material possessions from Australians. Senators in this very chamber today who support the Great Reset threaten our privacy, freedom and dignity. Yes, they're in this Senate chamber. 
One nation vehemently opposes the Great Reset, the Digital Identity Bill, theft of agricultural land use, forcing farmers off their land, and all of the Great Reset. One nation has a comprehensive plan to bring our beautiful country back to sustainable prosperity. And in the months ahead, we will be rolling that plan out. Instead of Lib Lab pushing Klaus Schwab's Great Reset with the tagline, you will own nothing and be happy, One Nation advocates the Great Resist. We stand for a world where individuals and communities have primacy over predatory globalist billionaires and their quizzling bureaucrats, politicians and mouthpiece media. And so, how will the globalists move their plan ahead to depopulate and manipulate the food supply? Here is journalist Alex Newman explaining. What's your reaction to this lab-grown meat? Are you at all surprised to hear this is coming to fruition, especially knowing people like Bill Gates and Richard Branson have invested in lab-grown meat companies? I'm not surprised at all. In fact, uh, this should have been very obvious a long time ago. Over 10 years ago now, I wrote an article warning that the United Nations was pushing exactly this kind of thing. Uh, in fact, if we can go back and read that article, it's called UN Let Them Eat Bugs. And if you look at their vision for the future of food, they want a radically transformed food system where basically small farmers, small ranchers do not exist anymore. Everything is controlled by huge corporations in bed with the government. And this lab-grown meat, these lab-grown chickens and, and other sources of alleged food, uh, people need to be aware this stuff is very dangerous. It is not nutritious like normal food is. We don't even know all the different chemicals. Right? This stuff is not going to taste like real meat. It's not, like, it's not going to taste like a steak. And so what they're going to have to do is completely douse it in chemicals that will supposedly make it taste something remotely resembling food. Uh, and these chemicals are very, very dangerous. I don't think people realize the, the depths of depravity of some of the individuals pushing this stuff. I mean, Bill Gates has been a population control fanatic for longer than I've been, than I've been alive. In fact, he comes from a population control fanatic family. His dad was on the board of Planned Parenthood. And so when you have people who are obsessed with the idea that there are too many of us promoting, I don't care if it's a, a medical intervention. I don't care if it's a new food source. Uh, frankly, my default position is going to be, I don't trust it. But knowing what we already know about these lab-grown meats and things, that uh, everybody should be very weary. Frankly, I'm going to be avoiding this like the plague. So there is only one way out at this stage, and that's people power. The other way is waiting for Donald Trump to return, or perhaps with or without RFK Jr., and withdraw from the WHO, as he promised opening the doors for others to follow. That may well explain why Trump is facing legal challenges from all fronts to stop him. It may yet go down to the wire. And Mary Ann Trump Barry, 86 years, was the oldest sibling of former US President Trump and was found dead on Monday in her New York City apartment. Police found her body inside the Fifth Avenue apartment in Manhattan's Upper East Side at around 4am. The city's medical examiner has not yet announced the cause of death, but police said there were no signs of trauma or foul play. Marianne was the oldest of the five Trump brothers and sisters. She was nominated to the U.S. District Court in New Jersey by President Ronald Reagan in 1983 and to the U.S. Court of Appeals Third Circuit by President Bill Clinton in 1999. She officially retired in 2019, leaving the public eye during her brother's presidency. Well, that concludes today's edition of Compass with me, Jason Olborn. Up next is Chris Smith. Thanks for listening to TNT Radio. 